Well, good morning. And uh, as you can tell, Christmas is upon us, or the season is upon us. And um, well, that means a lot's going to be happening in the next few weeks. A lot of events, uh, a lot of music, a lot of study. As you come here to the end of the term. Um, I did want to just let you know about a couple of events that are coming. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, around Kerwood that there's a canopy, a couple of canopies that are being installed, and that's because there are a couple of Christmas events that are going to be here. One this weekend, uh, on Saturday evening, we invite members of the community to join us for kind of a Christmas party. It's our way of saying thanks to the community for their uh, good hospitality to us. Then on Tuesday afternoon, the faculty and staff will join for their Christmas party, also in Kerwood, in the afternoon. And then a week from Monday, um, you who are students are invited to our house, kind of for a combination Christmas, uh, open house, but also kind of a study break. And that's from 8 to 10 in the evening, and you'll get a special invitation on that. So those are things that are coming. And um, I want to talk a little bit about Christmas this morning. But before I do that, I want to read two passages of Scripture, both of which are Real familiar, my guess, is first is from John, 1 John, and then the second is from 1 Corinthians. So John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word here referring to Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 verse, chapter 12. For now we see but a poor reflection, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will, be, I will know fully, even as I am known. Dr. Gady, why... Do you love Christmas? That's the question of the morning. And it's a question that I have gotten often over the years, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But also, it seems like the right question to ask at this point in time, especially now, maybe especially this year. I'll tell you this right off the bat. There are, there are lots of reasons not to like Christmas, which is why I think I've been asked the question so often incredulously sometimes. When some people learn of my affection for the Christmas season, they are genuinely puzzled. And it's usually the most reflective people that are the most puzzled. I remember a few years ago, I was at a conference with other scholars in my own area of study, and I was at a luncheon with a few friends who happened to be Christians. And we got to talking about the upcoming Christmas holiday. And almost immediately, my friends began offering this scathing critique of Christmas as a fundamentally pagan, materialistic, impoverishing, overly idealized ritual that no thinking Christian should have really much to do with. At some point, someone noticed my silence and they said, Stan, don't, don't you agree? And I sort of looked down at my plate and fiddled with my, my food and squeamishly said, Well, you know, I have to say, I kind of like Christmas. After which, mouths dropped and eyes popped and I could tell by their look that I was in jeopardy of losing all credibility as a scholar. Hold the presses. Hold the presses. Don't publish a single more Gady book until we get this resolved. 
Indeed, get this, his current books off the shelf. Station someone in his classes to monitor his teaching. Hold tenure, hold promotions. Mayday, mayday, we have a problem. Gady likes Christmas, which is true, and which needs some explanation. You see, there are lots of problems with Christmas. It is, it is a pagan holiday, just for starters. was so in the beginning. It probably is still that way for, for most people. From what I understand, many years ago in Europe, the winter solstice was used as a time to celebrate the end of winter and the beginning of a new season. I believe the evergreen tree was a symbol of something, and people probably danced around in fur coats or less and sang to the sun, hoping that it would one day return and warm up Europe again. I don't know what I'm talking about here, so don't remember this part. <laughs> the only important thing to remember is Christmas didn't come, Christians didn't come up with this event. Pagans did. And that makes it suspect right off the top. But there's a lot more wrong with Christmas than its origins. A great many of the symbols that we take for granted don't really work, do they? Jesus, for example, was born in Bethlehem, among cows in the Middle East. We think of evergreen trees covered with snow, sleigh rides, New England churches, shopping malls, street lights, and decorations of all kinds, shapes, and sizes. True, we do see a few crushes around manger scenes, but they're sort of out of place in a way almost odd. I remember our first Christmas in Santa Barbara after we had spent 22 years in New England. And I was feeling kind of homesick because Christmas, Christmas in New England is really, really sort of spectacular. Everyone puts candles in their windows, snow often covers the ground, and the towns look like Christmas cards. And you can actually take a sleigh ride if you want to. I mean, it just looks and feels the way Christmas is supposed to look and feel. But we weren't in New England. We were in California, and the grass was still green. And the days were up into the 70s sometimes. And people weren't bundled up. They were playing volleyball on the beach, stripped to their waist in the middle of December. And the whole thing seemed wrong, and I was not happy. But then, all of a sudden, in the middle of the misery, it dawned on me, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not in New England in a Mediterranean climate. The place he grew up in was much more like California than Vermont, so why in the world was I so bummed out about celebrating his birth in Santa Barbara? And of course, I didn't have a good answer. I merely had confirmation that our images of an ideal Christmas have a lot more to do with the culture out of which we come than the story out of which Christ comes. And of course, it gets worse. I mean, this has to be the greediest season of the year, right? Especially if you're a kid. Why do you like Christmas? Because you get things, that's why. Do you want to know how many times I woke up on Christmas morning as a kid and thought, peace on earth, goodwill toward men? <laughs> Zero, never, not once. Peace on earth, goodwill towards me. <laughs> that's what I thought about. And that's what I look forward to every Christmas. Which also means that almost everyone ends up kind of being disappointed at Christmas. Because you can always imagine getting something a little better than that which actually comes under the tree. My dad would always save the very best present till last. And he'd bring it out at the very end after all the other presents were opened. Sort of like the movie Christmas Story, if you remember that, when the dad brings out the Red Ryder BB gun 
after all the presents had been opened. Well, my dad would do that all the time, which meant that we expected him to do it, which means that at least half the time I was disappointed. You know, you expect a Schwinn and you get a Kmart special. Anybody know what a Schwinn is? Probably not. Oh, good. If you don't, it only proves my point. Anyway. And the, the poor parents, I mean, they end up getting into debt just trying to give their kids a decent Christmas. And it probably doesn't work because whatever you buy this year, you've got to do even better the year to come since expectations keep rising, which means that debt piles up and Christmas winds up being a season of poverty and unrealized ideals. You know, don't you, that Christmas is a good time to be a counselor because lots of people need therapy this time of the year. I'm serious. The ideal of family all being together and everyone being happy isn't reached in many homes. So the season reminds us of what we don't have, the friendships we've lost, the family that isn't there. And so many people find themselves in various states of depression at various times during the Christmas season. In fact, I'm getting a little depressed just thinking about it. And there's a reason. This Christmas, for the first time in many years, we're not going to all be together as a family. Our son and his wife had the gall to think that they should spend Christmas with her side of the family in New Jersey. Can you imagine that? Just because they spent it with us last year, they somehow came to the conclusion that they needed to be fair about the thing and only spend every other Christmas with us. Dumbest thing I ever heard of. I don't want fair. I want family, home, around the fire, with me. I'm being facetious here, but only just a little. Because Christmas often doesn't end up, does end up being about me. And that leads us back to the question I posed at the very beginning. Why do I like Christmas, anyway? Christmas isn't about me, it's about Christ. So why would I like a season that's so full of materialism, greed, envy, idealism, depression, and narcissism? Doesn't sound biblical to me. Why do I like it? Well, let me tell you a story. A few years ago, when we were still living in New England, I had one of those moments that just sort of gets seared into the brain. It's that memorable. It was Christmas, and everyone was back home where they belonged. Our oldest daughter, Heather, who was attending law school at Duke at the time, was home. She'd returned home for Christmas break. Our son, Nathaniel, our second, was also home on break. He was back from Westmont, where he was in the middle of his sophomore year. Kirsten, Judy, and I were also home, obviously, because that's where we lived, Kirsten being in the sixth grade and I having just graduated from kindergarten. That's a joke, sort of. <laughs> anyway, you get the picture. After being spread out all over the country for three or four months, we were all back together for Christmas. Now, the other thing you need to know is that we're rather habitual about Christmas at our house. That is, we've got all these traditions that have kind of just emerged over the years, and once they're in place, nothing is allowed to be changed. Indeed, between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we've got high liturgy going on, involving a fabulous fondue meal, which I direct, a Christmas Eve service at church, which I enjoy, a series of stories by the fire, which I read, a modest amount of sleep, which none of us get, Christmas stockings in, in the morning full of useless junk, mostly, but also love letters which we write to each other, 
and then read on Christmas morning, an eggs benedict breakfast made by yours truly, followed by opening up presents as slowly as any family has ever opened up presents in the history of the universe. There is more, but that's all I'm going to tell you for now. The point is, we go at this thing with great care and precision, but also with lots of joy and laughter, mostly because Dad keeps messing up the eggs benedict and everyone gets a real kick out of Dad's mistakes. All that's not true. What it is really is two days of storytelling, debating everything from weather to theology to politics, and just sharing our lives with one another. And I want you to know it's just fabulous. Not the ritual, but just being together without interruption for a few days. From the outside, I'm sure it looks like a stream of tradition and ritual. But from the inside, it pretty much seems like heaven to me, a time just to be in one another's presence for a time and the, for the pure joy of it. And then somewhere on the road from Boxford back to Hamilton, the whole thing really hit me hard. It was Christmas Eve. There was lots of snow on the ground. And we were returning from the midnight church service, meandering down a small country road in New England, heading for home, Christmas music still ringing in my ears, the whole family packed in the car, chatting about whatever. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is it. It's all I really want in life right here, right now. It was dark outside, obviously, and almost no cars on the road, no noise, no hurry anywhere, no nothing except the stunning, snowy beauty of God's creation all around me and our family together at Christmas, heading home. And I couldn't think of anything in the world that would be better than that, not a thing. And so I did what I always do in moments like that. I tucked it away deep in my heart, said, thank you, Lord, and kept driving, knowing that it wouldn't last, but knowing that it was precious just the same. And it didn't. Didn't last, I mean. In fact, that turned out to be the last Christmas we spent in New England together. Because only about a month or two after that day, we were called to Santa Barbara, to Westmont, to a new job and a new place and a new home. And that ride down a snowy country road from Boxford to Hamilton at Christmas was not to be again, ever. And that's what I love about Christmas. Not the ride from Boxford to Hamilton, but the reminder of what matters and the knowledge of its fleeting, precious, and oh-so-rare nature. It's the heartache of Christmas that makes it special, not the fulfillment. It's the vast difference between what could be and what is, the glimpse of what life should be like and the obvious fact that it's not like that yet. And now I want to say something that may sound a little bit harsh, but it's not meant that way. It's meant merely to be truthful. I think the pain we often feel at Christmas is exactly what we ought to feel, exactly. Christmas reminds us of what we don't have, the relationships that aren't as good as they should be, the people who aren't there that we love, the things that are missing in our lives, the unrealized hopes and dreams. That's Christmas. It's this immense juxtaposition of the ideal with the real, the vast gulf between what we would like and what is. Christmas is not about creation only, in other words. It's also about the fall. It's about sin. 
It's about the real world in which we live, which is why a lot of folks try to avoid it. Some by simply pretending that Christmas doesn't exist, turning it into a day like any other, hoping to be spared the pain of unrealized ideals. If you bring your ambitions low enough, you'll always meet them and get the life you deserve, I suppose. The other way we avoid it is to live forever with the hope that things will be better next time, that if we just spend a little more money or control a few more details or find the right people to be around or throw the right party, Christmas will finally be all that we imagined it to be. This approach is good for the economy, but not great for the mind or the soul. Stupidity rarely is, and I think this approach is precisely that. Which leaves us again, I think, with only one option, really. The ideal of Christmas, scarred by the real of the world in which we live. What could be forever constrained by what is creation in agony because of the fall. That's what we're talking about here. And that's the way it is no matter how good your Christmas is. I told you the story of our New England Christmas, not because it was normal, but just the reverse. It was very unusual, unusually good, about as good as it gets in some ways. And yet even that Christmas was just a moment in time which was gone very quickly, just a glimpse, just a bit of light in the midst of the darkness. And that, remember, is Christmas at its best. And often, of course, it's not at its best. Indeed, sometimes, in fact, it's pretty brutal. When I was 19 years old, I've told you the story about the accident I was in. And as a result, I spent Christmas in a hospital bed at home in a full-body cast watching Christmas go by. And it was awful, just awful. Because you don't want to watch Christmas at 19. You want to enjoy it and experience it and be in the middle of it. But that Christmas, I was a mere observer, and I didn't like it one bit. Good folks, family and friends took care of me and did whatever they could to make me, help me get through the season. And they were pretty wonderful, actually. But Christmas as a whole was dismal, a stark reminder of what I didn't have. Worse than that, however, was the Christmas which occurred only a few weeks after the death of my father in 1976. And it seems like yesterday to me. He died on December 4th, and then almost immediately thereafter, we gathered together as a family to celebrate Christmas. And it was all wrong, all wrong. My dad was an integral part of Christmas, remember? The Red Ryder BB gun, the surprise gift at the end of the day. Those things came from my dad, as did a good portion of my stability and my wisdom and my confidence. And now they were gone. He was gone at Christmas. And the gash in my heart was huge, along with the ache. And every Christmas after that, for years, whenever I heard certain songs, tears would well up in my eyes because they, they reminded me of my dad. And it's kind of awful. But it's also kind of wonderful, in a way. Because I appreciate dad more today than ever. And every time I feel the pain of his departure at Christmas, I keep learning from this man who died 25 years ago. I have much to learn. You see, you can't take the pain out of Christmas, no matter how grand the experience. But you can't take the wonder out of it either, not if you keep your eyes open as well as your heart. Both are there nearly every time. And sometimes if you're anything like me, when you're in the midst of it, you want to cry out and say, why? 
Why the bad times, for one thing? But why can't the good times endure for more than a moment, for more than just a glimpse? I want that ride from Boxford to Hamilton every time, every Christmas, and I want it to last. What I don't want is this Christmas cocktail of wonder and pain, of joy and sorrow, of heaven and hell, but that's what I get, and I want to know why. Good question. This time I have an answer, because that's Christmas. That's life without the fullness of Christ. For Christians and non-Christians alike, by the way, for non-Christians, of course, this is obvious. And indeed, this is what we would expect, right? Because without Christ, one is left forever hanging between creation and the fall, forever knowing what could be and what is not, forever suspended between the ideal of that which is good and right and true and the real of a world racked by evil and injustice and falsehood. And it's painful, and that's just the way it should be. In fact, I'll go further. That pain that we feel in those circumstances is a form of grace because it points us to the obvious fact that things are not the way they should be. We've got a problem with human beings. And Christmas not only makes that problem clear, it points us to the answer, to the babe in Bethlehem, who died on the cross to redeem us from our sins, who makes all things new, who stands in the gap between what is and what should be and makes us new creations. And if we're not new creations in Christ, then Christmas ought to be painful, a painful grace, forever a reminder of what we don't have and what we need desperately. But there's also going to be a little pain in it for the rest of us as well even for those of us who know Christ and his redemption. A different kind of pain, to be sure, but a pain nevertheless. Why? Two reasons, actually. In the first place, we are not what we should be, most of us. And Christ continues to work on us, to conform us to his image, to mature us, to grow us in him. And growth is always a little painful, at least for me. I told you the story of our last Christmas in New England, by the way, not to let you know how wonderful a Christmas in New England can be, but how stupid your president can be. You see, I was in glory on that day, not because I had a deep insight into the truth, but at least partly because I was nostalgically clutching onto the past. The truth is, I knew on that Christmas that change was in the air, that Westmont was probably going to be calling, and that that was, that, that was quite possibly our last Christmas in New England. And for that reason, I was holding on to Christmas past and forgetting about Christmas future. I was clutching so hard to the gifts that God had given me, in other words, that I was not making myself available to the gifts he was planning to give me in the days ahead, which is a problem for me. I learned that lesson for the first time when I was a student at Westmont, I think, from Dr. Hillegas, who taught RS at that time and who eventually became the president of Westmont. The class was Romans, and the story he told when he was talking about spiritual gifts and other gifts that God gives you, the story he told was very simple. He said, we want to hold on to God's gifts, but God wants to keep giving them. We keep making a fist, clutching onto what we have, but God wants an open palm. You keep your hands open, your palms out, and God puts in gifts that you need, 
also take some away. We don't like that part. So we try to clutch onto those gifts that he gives us. But when our hands are closed and we're making a fist, they aren't open to receive more gifts. God wants us to live with an open life and open palms, giving us what we need. And that's a hard lesson for me, a hard lesson. And it was so again in that Christmas of 1995 as I stood there clutching onto New England and our family of five when God was taking us to Santa Barbara, not a bad place to be after all, with plans to grow us to a family of six at least and give us new friends and opportunities that we could not have dreamed of. A learning moment, a painful moment, a moment of growth brought to you by Christmas the gap between what is and what is yet to be. But there's one more gap that we also live between, and that brings us to the final reason that we Christians continue to endure pain at Christmas. Not the chasm between creation and fall, for we're new creations in Christ, nor the gap between what we are and what we should be, but the last gap, so to speak, the final hurdle, the gap between the first and the second coming between knowing Christ now through his spirit and knowing him one day face to face. We're not there yet, friends. That's the point. The best is yet to be. We live as redeemed people in the midst of a groaning creation, as living testimony of that which is still to come. We have been given a down payment, says Paul. The spirit we have now is a foretaste of that which is yet to, to be the good which we have now, giving testimony to the very good which is still to come. You probably don't think much about this, most of you, because you're young, and that's fine. Indeed, when I was your age and I was in college, I used to pray that the Lord wouldn't come too quickly because I had an awful lot of things to do, places to go, people to see, things to experience. But in retrospect, I have to tell you the best of it, the very best of those places to go, people to see, and things to experience. It's just a glimpse, just a glimpse of what is yet to come. A delightful, wonderful, but superficial glimpse of the glory still to be. And that, too, should be a part of Christmas. Because Christmas is not just about the first coming, it's also about the second. It's not just about a promise fulfilled, it's also about a promise to be delivered. For now we see but a poor reflection, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I am known. And oh my, oh my, oh my, what a day of rejoicing that will be. What a day. I'm remembering again that Christmas in New England when we were returning from the midnight church service, meandering down a small country road, heading home, Christmas music still ringing in my ears, and the whole family packed in the car, chatting about whatever, and thinking to myself, this is it, this is it. No noise, no hurry to get anywhere, no nothing except the stunning, snowy beauty of God's creation all around me, and our family together at Christmas heading home. And at the time, I couldn't think of anything in the world that would be better than that. But I must tell you, I can today, and it would be heading home again, but this time for keeps, with the stunning beauty of God's creation all around me forever, 
and my family, our family, the family of God together at Christmas, a Christmas celebration without parallel and without end. Well, that's it. I'm done. Didn't say much, actually. Just enjoy Christmas. Enjoy the promise as well as the pain. Don't miss the wonder. But don't miss the fact that we haven't seen anything yet. Don't miss the first coming, in other words. But for heaven's sake, don't miss the second. Blessings on you, my friends. And have a Merry Christmas. Have a great day.